and uh, thank you also to Amelia for being our liturgist this morning. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you know, we've been in the middle of a sermon series on unity in the church, and today is the final day, the wrap-up day for that uh, sermon, and our scripture reading today really brings that whole theme of unity back to the basics, back to the fundamental starting point. The basic message that I want to share with you this morning, that I want you to see in the book of Hebrews, is that unity in the body of Christ is a way of life, and that life is the life of Jesus. Now, those of you who have studied Hebrews before know that it is a somewhat complicated book, and we're plopping down just right in the middle of it, so we're going to have to do a little bit of uh, background development here. But basically, this part of Hebrews is asking a question with which I think all of us can identify, and that is this. How do I experience God's presence? How do we draw near to God. The text begins in verse 19 by saying that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What are the holy places? Well, if we had read the book of Hebrews, you would know that the author of Hebrews uses this phrase, the holy places, to refer to the most holy place or the holy of holies, which was an important part of the ancient Jewish tabernacle or temple. So, uh, bear with me here. The ancient Jewish temple had two parts. First, there was the normal part, which I guess was the moderately holy place. Um, and that was where all of the activities of the temple occurred. And then there was an inner sanctum, which was the holy of holies, the most holy place. And that holy of holies was where God's presence dwelt directly. That was literally the place in the Jewish religious system where heaven met earth. But that inner place, that holy of holies, was not open to just anyone. In fact, it was closed to everyone except the high priest. And the high priest could only enter there once a year. So for the most part, no human being ever set foot in that holy of holies. So I want to invite you this morning to just picture this with me and imagine what it would be like to enter into that Jewish temple. First, you would walk through a huge, noisy courtyard full of worshipers and priests and animals and the, the noise and blood of hundreds of animals being sacrificed every day. And then you would enter the temple through a curtain. You would push aside the fabric and you would walk into that first area of the temple, that holy place. The holy, the holy place, the, the main area of the temple, was simply a large room, not so much unlike the one that we're in now. It would be dimly lit and mostly empty. There was an incense altar, there was a bread table, and there was a lampstand. Maybe there would be a few priests silently moving around, going about their business. The air would be thick with the incense that was constantly be burning. And the only sound that you would hear would be the, the murmur of everything going on outside the temple. Are you picturing this scene in your mind? Now at the far end of the room, 
would be the Holy of Holies. But what separated off the Holy of Holies wasn't a wall with a door like we would probably do today. Maybe you could close it and bolt it shut. Um, Instead, there was simply a curtain, or better yet, a veil. The veil was maybe 30 feet wide by 30 feet high, and it was made from a single piece of fine linen. And on that linen were embroidered uh, angels in, in red and blue and purple thread. And behind that linen veil was the very presence of God, God's dwelling place on earth. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Now, I think that today, when we talk about that veil or curtain, most of us tend to think of that curtain as something that separated the Israelites from God's presence, like a barrier between God and them. But, but really think about it. If you walked into that temple, as we just imagined, and you saw that veil, that piece of linen stretched there, would your thought have been, wow, God is so far from me, so distant, so separated. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Your, your experience of that veil would have been, wow, God is so close. God is so present. There is only this fragile piece of linen between us. And that was really the purpose of that veil. To take a modern example, we're all familiar with bridal veils, right? That's the piece of fabric that hangs over the bride's face on her wedding day. On my wedding day, when I saw my beautiful wife walking down the aisle with that uh, veil over her face, I will admit that was the first time I think we had ever interacted with a piece of fabric hanging between us. (laughs) That was not our typical conversation pattern. Um, But my reaction was not to think, oh my goodness, she is so far away from me. I'm more separated from her than I've ever been. Of course not. The veil actually expresses nearness. I was nearer to my wife at that moment than I had ever been in my life. So that veil or curtain is not a sign of God's absence, but a sign of God's presence. The veil was the point of contact between God's presence and our human existence. And God's presence was so close that once a year, the high priest would sprinkle himself with water in ritual cleansing, would take blood from an animal sacrifice, and would enter in to that holy of holies to stand directly before God as a representative of all of the people of Israel. So that is a kind of breakneck summary, but that is the basic configuration of the ancient Israelite system that Hebrews is talking about. I split it into four parts for you. Uh, The way that God was made present to his people was spatial, right? In a certain location, the temple. That's where God's presence was. And to be in God's presence meant to go to that place. The preparation required for contact was that ritual cleansing, the sprinkling with water. The point of contact, the, the interface, was that linen veil or curtain. And the nature of the contact that God had with his people was indirect through that high priest who was a representative of the people, right? The people themselves did not enter the Holy of Holies. It was their representative who did so. 
So, so that was the ancient Israelite system prior to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. I told you we'd need some background. <laughs> um, but what the book of Hebrews is saying is that now in Christ, something similar but far more glorious is happening. In verse 19, our first verse of our reading today, we already see a radical shift. It says that we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies, not just the high priest. We'll come back to that. In verse 20, Hebrews announces that there is a new way. The old way of entering God's presence was spatial, by accessing a certain location, right? The Holy of Holies. But the new way, Hebrews says, is living. A new and living way. That is to say, being in God's presence no longer means being in a certain location on the planet and being in a certain room in that certain location. Rather, being in God's presence means being inhabited by a certain kind of life. That life is the life of Christ. I am the way, Jesus says in John 14. I am the life. So Hebrews is saying that there's a new way of experiencing God's presence, no longer a place, but a life. Then in verse 22, Hebrews explains that there's also a new system of preparation. The ancient high priest performed that ritual cleansing, but that was a ritual cleansing that was outward only, sprinkling water in a way that left the inner life untouched. But even under that ancient system, people realized that something more was needed. That's why we read from Ezekiel 36 this morning, where God promises that one day he will institute that new cleansing. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. We know that baptism is the fulfillment of this promise, as Hebrews says. As our bodies are washed with pure water, our hearts also are sprinkled clean. In baptism, we are given new life. We are born again of water and spirit, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. Born from above into newness of life. In baptism, the life into which we are born is the life of Christ. Paul says that as we are buried with him in baptism, so also we are raised with him in the newness of Christ's own life. So whereas the old way that God was made present to his people was spatial, the new way is living, the life of Christ. And whereas the old preparation was a merely outward cleansing, the new preparation is sacramental. It's the inward cleansing of baptism through which we're born into new life. And so now we come to the veil, that point of contact between God's presence and human existence. For the ancient Israelites, that veil was a curtain that revealed God's presence, a linen curtain. But according to verse 20 of our reading from Hebrews, the new point of contact, the new curtain, is Jesus' flesh. For the ancient Israelites, the veil was their point of contact with a divine place. For us, Jesus' flesh is the point of contact with a divine life. Now, those who were alive at the time of Christ, his disciples and those who walked with him, had, there was a sense in which for them, seeing Jesus in the flesh meant seeing the life of God walking and talking on this earth, right? 
And that must have been a glorious thing. But that's not what Hebrews is talking about. By the time Hebrews is written, the time of Jesus' ministry on earth is long past. In fact, what those disciples had walking with Jesus on the earth, glorious as it was, remained merely external. They had contact with someone else's life, Jesus' life. What Hebrews is pointing to is that we are ushered into something far greater than even those who lived with Jesus had. Hebrews is pointing here to the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper, into which we enter into God's presence through the body and blood of Jesus. Think about this. Those who lived with Jesus saw his life through his flesh among them. But we who receive communion receive his life through his flesh so that the life of Christ is in us, inhabiting us and nourishing us. What an incredible grace that is. So Hebrews says that the point of contact with God's presence is now the sacrament, is now the flesh of Christ. And this brings us lastly to the nature of that contact. Remember that the ancient Israelites did not enter into the Holy of Holies directly, but only indirectly through the high priest as their representative. According to verse 21, we also have a high priest over the house of God, over the church, that's Jesus Christ. So then the question comes, do we enter into the Holy of Holies or does our representative high priest enter into the Holy of Holies on our behalf? And the answer is, of course, yes. If it is Christ the high priest who has the right to enter into God's living presence. But whereas the ancient Israelites were only represented by their high priest, we are joined to our high priest, Jesus Christ. Through baptism and communion, we are made participants in Christ. We're made members of Christ's body. And so when Jesus, the high priest, enters into the Holy of Holies, we enter there too, directly and truly. What the ancient Israelites had only indirectly, in shadows and images, we have directly, through being joined to Jesus Christ as the head of his body, the church. And so Hebrews is saying that God's presence is no longer found in a place, but in a life. We are initiated into that life not by external purification, but by being born anew in Christ, in baptism. The point of contact that expresses and establishes God's nearness to us is no longer that linen veil, but is instead the flesh of Christ, through which we really and truly are able to enter into that holy of holies, into the living presence of God, which is Christ in us through the sacrament. That's what Hebrews is talking about. That is the glorious reality towards which this passage is pointing us. Hannah agrees. <laughs> so now we can see why Hebrews says in verse 25 that it's so important for us to meet together. There are, of course, many natural reasons for Christians to come together on Sundays and at other times. 
Christian fellowship involves mutual support. It involves friendship. It involves enjoying the screams of infants and the laughter of children. It involves sharing wisdom or spending time together, confiding in one another. All of these things are deeply and richly good. In fact, they're even necessary for living a Christian life. At the same time, we have to admit that there are also good reasons for Jews or Buddhists or members of a sports team or members of a book club to come together, aren't they? What sets Christian fellowship apart when it comes to corporate worship, why it's so important that Christians not forsake meeting together on the Lord's Day, is that what Christians do together on Sundays is a participation in the very life of Christ. What happens as Christians meet together around word and sacrament is unlike any other meeting on earth. It's unlike any private prayer. It's unlike any Bible study. It's unlike anything in all of creation. What happens through the font and the pulpit and the table is that we are grafted into and nourished by the very life of God himself. We enter into that holy of holies and are drawn into the living presence of God. That's something that only happens when we meet together in corporate worship. And that's really the source, the wellspring of all those other forms of unity and fellowship that are so important to us. And so the book of Hebrews says, don't neglect that. I love how the author of Hebrews says that this is a manner of habit. Did you catch that in verse 25? Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, on one level, this is just an insightful, practical observation. In the same way that attending church every Sunday is a habit, not attending church every Sunday can quickly become a habit also. And so Hebrews is saying, don't make church attendance a decision that you use up in the air every Sunday morning. Make it a habit, otherwise neglect will become a habit. And that's very important. But on a deeper level, Hebrews is also revealing something profound about the nature of our church gatherings. The original Greek word that Hebrews uses here for habit is athos. Habit is a perfectly fine translation of athos, but it, it misses some of the complexity of what athos means. So, for example, our English word ethic comes straight from the Greek word athos as well. The word athos really has to do with the character of our lives. Not just this or that decision that we make, but the habitual fabric that determines the life that you live. And so in English, we also speak of habituation, for example, or habitation, or inhabiting, which means dwelling, living out a certain kind of life in a certain place and way. So I would say that the Greek word athos means something like this, the sustaining context of life that determines the character of the life within you. The sustaining context of life that determines the character of the life within you. Let me give you an example. Uh, many of you know that in a former life, I was a student of uh, ancient Greek culture, and the very first appearance of the word athos in Greek literature comes in Homer's Iliad, 
what happens is that a horse breaks free of its bonds and it goes running out into the free pastures, joyfully kicking and neighing, just intoxicated by the sun and the breeze and the grasses and so forth. And Homer says in the Iliad that those free pastures are the ethos of horses. They're the sustaining environment. They're the habitat or habitation, we would say, where a horse can be most fully itself and most fully alive. That's what Paul is saying about us. The sustaining context that's our proper habitat is the church. The sustaining environment of baptism and the proclamation of the word, confessing our faith together, and especially being nourished by the Lord's Supper. It's when those things are a habit, when they're the fabric of our lives, when we're habituated to them, when we as one body dwell in the context of these things, that is when we are released to be most fully ourselves. It is, it's as we're nourished together and inhabited by the very life of Christ that we are freed to be most fully alive. So when Hebrews says, don't neglect meeting together, there's really something huge, even existential, that's at stake here. This is really about life. And that is what I pray that the Holy Spirit impresses upon you this morning. Don't Don't neglect the source. When we neglect the word and sacrament, we become habituated. That, there's that habit word again. We become habituated to a different kind of life that is not of God. But when we meet around the table and we receive the body and blood of our Savior, then we are inhabited by the life of God, drawn together as one unified body into that living holy of holies. The last point that I want to draw your attention to this morning, uh, and, and then we'll end, is this. Where does our confidence rest? There's a way that you could misunderstand the entire message this morning, which is that you could think to yourself, okay, now I've got the formula, I have the three-step plan for God's presence, and I can be confident in my approach to the spiritual life. But this is not about simply doing better, trying harder, working harder. I'm here to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter how well-informed you are, it doesn't matter how theological your grip of the book of Hebrews is, or how insightful you are about the nature of our church life. If you think that you can be confident to enter into God's presence because you're getting your religious ducks in a row, then it's not going to work. Sooner or later, you'll find yourself wavering. But Hebrews says this in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Friends, when we think about unity in the church, our confidence is never in our fellowship with one another, as though our efforts were adequate to build up to the unity that God desires of us. Instead, our confidence is in God's fellowship with us, which draws us near to him and near to one another as we are united to Christ in word and sacrament. So I would just encourage you, draw near to God this morning. Commit yourself anew and afresh to the source 
of all of our fellowship, all of our unity, indeed, our very life, Jesus Christ. And draw near to Jesus with confidence, for God has promised, and he is faithful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for drawing us near to you. Thank you for unifying us as a church by nourishing us through your life. Above all, thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, who has opened for us a living way to your presence through the veil of his flesh. May we hunger to be nourished by his life to enter into that holy of holies, join to him, and therefore join to his entire body, the church. Father, give us confidence in nothing else in this world, but other than your great faithfulness. We ask this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.